good to, good to be with you this morning, and if you are new or visiting, just, just glad you're here. Well, this is a worship service where we uh, worship Jesus, and, and we do that a number of ways, in case you're wondering kind of what you're, you're witnessing here. We do it through uh, singing. Uh, we don't just try to sing random songs, but songs that relate to what Christ has done through uh, his mercy and gracious work in his cross, life, uh, death, and resurrection. And so uh, we, we do that by singing, and, and these songs actually, we hope, also serves uh, the other way we worship, which is by sitting under uh, just the, the the taught word, the preached words, we might see more what God might want to say through what he's revealed here. We worship Jesus by uh, observing the supper, Lord's Supper, communion, however you grew up uh, each week too, to be nourished and reminded of the saving benefits of Jesus Christ. Uh, We also worship by being generous. So uh, we give in the small silver boxes on the back wall. And I always say, if you're not a regular attender, uh, please uh, don't feel uh, compelled to give. We just want you to know uh, the God that we serve and love. So we're going to be in Psalm 73. Before we get in Psalm 73, you can turn there. I just want to remind you, the apologetics class kicks off uh, Tuesday. Uh, so thrilled that all, all of you uh, who have signed up for that, we're really overwhelmed actually at uh, just how many are, are desiring to kind of walk through that. So it's going to be five weeks long, uh, a class on basically us helping uh, be rooted in what we believe as uh, the people of God and to be more confident, not just confident for the sake of confidence, Confidence, but uh, confidence so that when we, we can be actually more winsome and helpful, uh, thoughtfully engaging the life and mind around us. So remember, uh, any, any doctrine you learn, any information you learn, any knowledge you learn is never so that you can just beat someone up with the Bible. It's so that you can actually thoughtfully and helpfully uh, move them towards the creator of the universe and what Jesus Christ has done. Um, I say a lot, uh, people say, when I talk to people, they just don't want to listen. Well, it could be uh, the offense of the gospel, or it could be that you're a jerk. So you just got to kind of discern which that is. Uh, and and be humble enough to, to receive that. So uh, we're going to be in Psalm 73. Uh, we've been walking through the Psalms. Normally we walk through books of the Bible, uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, to kind of get the full counsel of what God wants to say to us. And uh, we decided for the summer to take Psalms, uh, different ones. They're actually songs that God's people would sing and pray uh, in the Old Testament. You see a lot of them repeated uh, through people referencing them in the New Testament. We just wanted to pick a few. There's really uh, no rhyme or reason as to far as don't overanalyze or over-spiritualize the ones we're picking. We just uh, kind of wanted God to lead us to particular ones each week, and so I uh, trusted that he would work. And so we're going to be in Psalm 73, and this is the Psalm of Asaph, not David. We've seen a number of Psalms of David, but we're going to be uh, seeing the Psalm of Asaph today. And uh, as we get into Psalm 73, here's, here's what um, I, I think of a lot as I, whenever I come up to, to teach or preach, and that's um, so many of us, when, when life starts falling apart, we, we question God, right? That's a normal, natural, human thing to do. And sometimes we, we hate it even when we do it, but, but we do it anyways. And so um, a lot of the reasons is because life is difficult. Um, this side of uh, Genesis 3, we live in fracture, we live in futility, we live in uh, just unease, we live in angst, we live in this constant desire desire to get to our future home. We're, we're citizens of heaven. We're not citizens of, of just this earth, right? But God has us here for reasons, right? It's, it's meaningful. It's fruitful. It's laborious. But um, as we think about those things, I, I, I always want to be mindful of the room. So, so I'm, I'm well aware of, of pain. I'm well aware of the just the difficulties of this year. I'm well aware of uh, some of us have experienced loss recently, or some of us have had the worst week of our life. Uh, some of us feel betrayed. Some of us relationally are just feeling uh, constantly like it's, it's just a chore, and it's, and it's work, and it's arduous. And, and I want to be absolutely mindful always, each Sunday we gather, of, of who we are, but I also never want to mislead you. 
Um, because the danger is that we can constantly come into this room and think, well, um, maybe if I follow Jesus, maybe if I, I submit to this God that I'm hearing about, then God will fix all the things that I don't like. Right? I mean, that's a very common response, right? Especially when we hit, when we hit pain, when we hit plight, when we hit difficulty. And so um, I, I just want to be honest and say he might absolutely, this side of heaven, redeem every bit of what you want to see redeemed, and he may not. <laughs> because the message of this book is not that God's going to intervene and come into your life and change all the things you don't like. It's that he's going to actually give you something better than all of those things. And that's himself. Um, that's what you're going to see in Psalm 73. This is a guy who's going, man, I'm, I'm surveying the landscape, and I'm looking at my own life, and, and it looks like kind of the wicked are prospering, and I seem to be trying to follow the Lord, and it ain't going to that well for me, and yet he remembers at the end, this is what he's after, God's my portion, right? He's the one that I have. It's good to be near God. You're going to see him go through this whole thing and ultimately end up at the place that God has only promised him, which is himself. Um, this is why you've got to get that the gospel of Jesus Christ is that he reconciles you to God. Otherwise, you're going to set yourself up for constant betrayal in your life, making yourself promises that God never promised you. And so we want to see here what, what God might want to say. You're going to see a lot of shadows of kind of Habakkuk. If you were here for a Habakkuk series, that's why I'm not going to get into a lot of the, the good and evil uh, in this sermon because we covered a, enough of that in Habakkuk. But I, I'm going to see uh, here this psalm. It simply uh, breaks down in kind of three ways. You're going to see up to verse 15 is what it seems. Uh, if you like writing or like underlining or writing in your margin, what it seems. And then 16 to 28 is what is reality, and you're going to see within that what the solution is. So what it seems, what is reality, and then what is the solution. Now, I love this psalm because this psalm is so in your head. He's just so honest, Un unlike many of us who love to be just Christianese. Uh, he's just honest. He, he, he actually admits that he envies the wicked. Uh, he admits his frustrations. He admits the ways that he's unsettled and uh, ultimately, though, he will find himself in somewhere steadfast. So uh, verse 1, what it seems. That's what we're going to see. Verse 1, this is what the psalmist says. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. All right, he starts out like many of us. and He goes, I know God is good to his people. Right now, any of us, if we claim to be Christians, I think intellectually we would say, yeah, we, we all know this, that God only does good to those who are his. Now, not good according to how we define good, good according to how God defines good, but God does good according to his. We are his friends, no longer his enemies. We're his sons and daughters. We're in an adopted family. We're, we're these chosen people that God's lavished with mercy and kindness. So any of us would say, yeah, God is good to those who are his. And because of that, he says, so it seems that those who give no thought to God, remember, wicked, when you see it in the Psalms, this is not the guy foaming at the mouth who's a serial killer. I feel like so often we think wicked, you think of the most heinous person you could ever conjure up in your mind. It just means somebody who gives no thought to God. He makes no decisions with thought to God. He, he, he mocks God. He blasphemes God. He doesn't walk around mindful that God is the creator. He thinks that he's the creator. He wants to be God. He doesn't want God to be God. So, so those people, because it seems like those who give no thought to God have it all together. Meanwhile, I'm suffering. Meanwhile, things aren't going the way that I would like. So the psalmist says, I know he's good, but my feet almost slipped. He's going, I almost threw in the towel because of what I saw. Right? I almost, I almost just, just threw away my faith and, and walked away from this whole thing thinking it was a sham because of what I witnessed in life. Some of us are there. 
Some of us are there. But the psalmist confesses that this struggle started somewhere. And it always starts here. It started with envy. It started with envy. Uh, This is where you begin to uh, question his work and ways. And almost always, like the psalmist, it starts with envy. Envy is when you want someone else's life, right? You want their opportunities. You want their talents. You want their looks. You want their opportunities and advancements. You want their career changes. You want uh, everything that they have and what you think that you do not have. You want their possessions. And this psalm helps you label envy for exactly what it is. And it might be hard to receive. Doubting in the goodness of God towards you. Right? That's simply envy at its basic form. Because envy is this horizontal expression of a vertical reality. Right? So so as soon as you believe that God in some ways not being good to you, right? Because God, you're good to your people. As soon as you believe God's not good to you, it expresses itself in horizontal realities. You can't help but survey the landscape based upon what you think you're not receiving from him. So you start envying others. And envy is so pervasive in the human heart. I mean, it even made, I was thinking about this, it even made the Garden of Eden seem unsatisfactory. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? I mean, that's why we know that this has nothing to do with your circumstances and every bit to do with the condition of our hearts. Right? Because you got Adam and Eve, they're running around naked. God says, have at it. Have whatever you want. Eat of any tree. And they still find themselves saying, God's holding out. God's still not good because what really is good is probably in that tree. The tree that he said we were forbidden to eat from. And there's already envy being sown from the garden. It must be that one thing I don't have. It's like kids at a party. Uh, if you have young kids and you, you cut all the birthday cake or you give out cookies, it's the first thing to do. Well, his piece is bigger, right? Or they have more cookies than me. They just whine, right? I mean, envy is just built into our system, right? It's, it's in us from birth. And so he's seeing all these things. And so let me just ask real quickly, who or what are you envious of today? You find yourself in these, already out of the gate in these first three verses, wishing you had someone else's talents, someone else's job, someone else's house, someone else's experiences. Um, who or what are you envious of today? And then, could you call it for what it is as you're confessing that and thinking through that? Could, could you confess it honestly for what it is to say that um, maybe it's you not believing that God is good to you. It's you challenging God's goodness in your life as you envy that. Now, now here's why we do this. One, sin, obviously. I mean, original sin. It's, it's in us. But, but this is how people market us. I mean, you realize you're programmed to think about what you don't have? I mean, this is why everyone markets everything they do to you. I mean, what is marketing? Trying to sell you on something that you don't currently have. Right? So you're going, oh man, I need to have that if I'm going to be satisfied. I need to have that if I'm going to be satisfied. We're, we're driven by that in this type of culture. And so um, the Bible will say, hey, be careful that you do this. The Bible calls it coveting. But here's what's awesome. The scriptures also consistently say, recognize what is yours. It's what I love. It's not just, hey, um, you don't have this. It's look at what you do have. Look at what is yours in God and in his gospel in Jesus Christ. Um, like for me, uh, here's an example. Because I think relationship changes everything. I mean, you knowing that you're in relationship with God. Like, like I know in my marriage I got the better end of the deal. 
Like, she still looks 21, I keep aging. Like, I, I know that, that I, in, in some way, shape, or form, got the better of the deal when I married Kristen. Um, and, and also, you want to know how else I know that? Because I know me. Like, I know, I know the ways I am. I know, I know the pride that exists. I know the sinful proclivities. I know the things that I'm after. I know the ways that I can not speak lovingly, and yet she continues to bear with me. She continues to stay in the covenant with me. She continues to forgive. I mean, I mean so biblically, it's this, do you, do you recognize what you have, you and God, right? Like, like he's holy, I'm sinful, and hold on, we're, we're together? Like, we're joined together. Like, he, you're his child. You have his glory clothing you. You have his affection that's unending. You have love that is based on nothing that you do, solely on the work of himself and laying down his life for you. It's, it's this idea of you start looking at all these other things you think you don't have, but you forget what you do have. Like you forget what you have in this relationship. You forget who God is, and that's where the psalmist is going to get. He's going to say it's very easy to look around and think and presume and buy the illusion that somehow I'm lacking. When Psalm 23, we learn, says if we have him, we shall not lack. We shall not want anything. So he goes on in verse 4, and he just kind of keeps ranting. He's very angry. He's very perplexed. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. So he's just whining. They seem to have it well. They have no pangs until death. Man, you'd think that they'd have trouble until death, but, but death seems to be the worst thing. Their life is eased, and, and they even peacefully leave this earth. Their pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? He's continuing to stare at what it seems and not what is reality. He's, he's continuing to stare at what he thinks he doesn't have and what is actually his in the God of the universe. And, and what he's, as he's looking, he's going, man, these are the social elites. Look, they're all beautiful, all, all the wicked, all who give no thought to God. They all have VIP seats at all the games. They all fly, fly first class in all their flights. They, they all seem to have all these things that are going well. Servants at their homes wear designer clothes. What's worse, pride is their necklace. They take credit for everything. They boast about it. And it seems like the wealthiest, the most arrogant people on earth who give no thought to God seem to have no struggles at all until death. Life seems to be easy. Life seems to be peaceful. Now, like him, uh, you kind of get in your head, you would think that, that terrible things would happen up until their death, he says, but they die peacefully. Yet they spend their life at the expense of others, enjoying oppression, enjoying ridiculing the God of the universe. You look at that and you consider the opposite. I mean, think of Johnny Erickson Tata, right? Quadriplegic, paralyzed, serving God and suffering. And, and so he's looking at these two things going, God, I don't, I don't understand. You got men and women, you got sons and daughters of yours that are, that are suffering, that don't have food on the table. And then you got these gloats that are just enjoying their affair who give no thought to you. They even, even just mock you going, really, you're gonna talk to your God? He doesn't exist. Like, really, he's gonna hear you? The whole thing's a sham that you're involved in. He goes, I'm trying to understand this. God, where are you? The psalmist is going, is going, this is driving me crazy. Verse 12, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. He goes, they don't care about anything. 
They don't care about Jesus. They don't care about sin. They don't care about uh, their love for their neighbor. They don't care about striving after holiness. They don't care about confessing. They don't care about loving you and following you. They don't care about giving you glory. Because they, they just seem to be at ease. Like, this is such a stumbling block for so many. I can't tell you how many times I've sat with people and they've said, if God existed or God was so loving then, why are six million kids dying every year? Right? If, if God was so good and so loving, then why do these just wicked, perverse people seem to get off with no justice? How come God's allowing them to be on this earth? And, and I, I would just, I mean, we don't even have time. That's what, go take the apologetics class, right? That's a great plug. Go, go on Tuesday night. But I don't have time for that. But listen, at, at first, just in a quick thing, we have it so reversed. Like we, we, are, we, we think in our heads that we're going to stand before God and judge him. <laughs> like we think in, at the end of all things, we're going to put him on the dock and say, hey, God, if you were so loving, why'd you allow that? Hey, God, if you, we, we totally forget it's the total reverse. And at the end, God's going to put us before him and he's going to judge us. And he's going to say, if you were so loving, how come so many people were starving and dying over there? If you seem to love, why don't you steward what God gave you for the kingdom? If you're so loving, if you had the Holy Spirit of God in you, why don't you use your life for my fame and my glory and not your own? And so he's here, and his, his mind is just uh, working in ways that are so difficult and yet so natural. And so he's staring at what it seems. He forgets what is reality. Verse 13, he says, so all, this is where we get. This is where we get when we're like this. He says, so all in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He goes, so it's in vain I've kept my heart pure. I mean, I mean why am I even confessing sin? Why am I even trying to, to strive after God? Why am I even trying to live a life that's honoring to his name? This is all just in vain, it seems. It's all a waste of time. I mean, why have I even tried to keep my heart pure? Why have I even tried to live a pure life? I mean, I tithe every week, and I still have greater financial strain. Meanwhile, people don't tithe at all, and they seem to increase in their financial market. You ever thought that, felt that? He feels that. He sees that. He's aware of that. He's basically saying, I've just wasted the last 10 years of my life following you, asking for forgiveness, walking with you, pursuing you. But don't miss verse 15. Don't miss verse 15. It says in there, because he's been saying, this is how I felt. This is what's been going through my head. Now, if you're honest, you can agree and say, yeah, that, that's gone through my head, Right? I've had moments, I've had weak moments. But he said, if I had spoken up, I would have, that would have been very unwise. I would have betrayed your children. I would have led them in a wrong direction. See, he's a leader of the people of God at that time, and he's going, man, imagine if I just spoke up at this point and just started ranting about all of these things to the people that I'm, that I'm serving and leading. Right? Like imagine if I ended my sermon right here, right? And I, and I came in and we're sitting here together and I'm going, man, you know how hard it is being a pastor? Like you know the people I got to deal with, how many phone calls I had this week? I, I'm trying to serve God, love God, man. Can you? And I just said, let's pray. Like think about how discouraged you'd be, right? 
I mean, think about how, how just you leave feeling, man, wow, that wasn't edifying. Wow, I feel crushed. Wow, I mean, never emailing him again, right? I mean, you're just, you just feel all these things. See, 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 here's what this psalmist is learning. This is so, so, so important. Because he's going, if I'd spoken in that moment, I would have betrayed your children. I would have taken them in the wrong direction. See, the psalmist had a wisdom of keeping his mouth shut. The the psalmist had a wisdom in processing theology in his heart and mind. I'm not saying that we don't. You should go talk to brothers and sisters and work those things out. But he says, man, you got to be careful when and how you speak those things. Because you can totally betray others and lead others down a wrong direction. Especially if you're over people or leading people. Um, How many times do we not have this wisdom? Uh, You receive an email you're so angry, and just boom, I'm just going to let him know how, and you just send it, right? And it's like one encouragement, wait at least 24 hours. I mean, if you're angry and hot-headed and you get an email, don't, don't, don't just blast back somebody because nine times out of ten you're going, oh, man, I shouldn't have sent that, right? And then it's out in writing, and it's forever there, and it can't be deleted, and stuff you post on Twitter and Facebook, really think through the things that you start speaking. And there's a wisdom here that he has where he realizes, no, it might not be wise to just start flying these things out. I mean, maybe others of you, you don't even know what you believe about a particular theology that you start blabbing it out to everybody and just ranting about it. You haven't even formulated it in your own mind. He's going, there's wisdom in processing. There's wisdom in not just saying things out loud where it might do more damage than it does good. But the psalmist teaches us, he works out these hard thoughts theologically. He works it out with the Lord, and he protects the damage of speaking up too soon. See, God welcomes us to lay out your cares, lay out your feelings, lay out your pains, lay out your hurts, and then he loves to mend those things by lovingly giving you the truth. It's a, it's a gauze of truth over your wounds. A lot of times we want to flare up the moment we're inflicted, right? Right? We don't want to see the whole story. We don't want to take time to read the truth of God and see what he's trying to say and look at what he's trying to do. Um, so we say things sometimes we don't mean. And Asaph had an amazing ability to do that. And, and I love this. See, he's pressing into, he's thinking about these things. He has a moment where he realizes it's good to process and not to just speak. And then this is the major transition in verse 16. He begins to now, because he's giving time with the Lord, to think about what reality is. So he doesn't let himself fly off the handle, but he stops and he, he enters the sanctuary of God. Verse 16, this is what is reality. So what it seemed, and now it's what is reality. He goes, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. You can circle that. Then I discerned their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and arrogant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. 
Isn't that beautiful? He goes, man, this was, this was bothering me so much. I was so preoccupied with envy and looking at it, what everyone else had, what I thought I didn't have, and how I thought you weren't really running things well, God. I felt like you had left the throne. I felt like you had forgotten me and forgotten those who were yours. And, and at a weak moment, yet, yet I didn't speak, and I, I needed to process. I needed to think about how I was thinking about these things. And he goes, it wasn't until I got into the presence of God that I started to think right that I started to think clearly. I actually got up in, in, in your place and I saw things from your perspective. Not just my puny little human perspective, but your perspective. And I worked at things from that. Suddenly I realized, wait a minute, man, they're the ones on slippery ground. I'm about to throw in the towel the most secure, short thing I have. And really, they're the ones on slippery grounds. I mean, they're, they're going to wake up like, a, like they're in a dream. All of a sudden, they're going to wake up to the reality of there's judgment. Without Christ, you will perish. And it's like a, these terrors in the night. They're going to wake up out of their illusion of success. Their illusion that they, they, them demeaning others and trying to be God and getting joy out of power at the expense of others. They're going to wake up one night and realize that that is not reality at all. That reality is that God is king. And that reality is that they need a mediator, Jesus Christ, for their arrogance and for their wickedness. I love it. He goes, I had this eternal perspective when I came in the sanctuary of God. See, most of our moments where we doubt the goodness of God are predicated on the assumption that life is long and life here is permanent. You understand that? Like, like most of us, the reasons that you doubt the goodness of God is because most of those assumptions are predicated that life here and now is very long and it's permanent. We know according to the scriptures that it's very different. That's why I love how it all changed when he got in the sanctuary of God. He understood reality. Reality was not life here. Reality was life with God. Reality was that life is eternal. Reality was that that this is actually but a breath, James 4 says. Man, this is Psalm 39. We're but a fleeting shadow on a wall. This life is so short. Eternity is forever. Yet we can get so focused on here, can't we? It feels like our whole life is here. And God's going, man, no, I'm just preparing you for forever. You have me now and you have me forever. See, eternity restores the balance to Asaph. Um, I, I say all the time, when, when it's so interesting when people come in this room and, and, and I'll talk to them, they're like, oh man, it's so good just to, just to finally, finally escape reality. And I'm going, no, 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 no. Do you not realize that you're entering into the most real thing that exists? You're not escaping reality by coming in here. You're entering into reality by coming in here. You're being reminded. You're being conformed. You're being renewed to what's actually true. That, that everything here, man, unless it's done for him, doesn't really matter a whole lot. I mean, yes, it matters how we steward our bodies and our lives. I mean, at the end of the day, if it's not for his glory and we're not pushing into him and learning more about his fame and renown and, and working to the advancement of his kingdom, I mean, what, what really matters? I mean, we're not going to have a kingdom in the future. 
in the sense of it's God's kingdom and God's a good king. And it's like, do we, do we understand this, that, 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 that there is an eternal separation from God? Does that shape how we speak to our neighbors? I mean, it, it frames everything, how we live, how we love, how we act, how we work, how we, how we think, where our identity lies, how our anxieties are calmed, how our hearts are put at ease. I mean, if eternity is sure and that is reality, and that's the greatest thing we can bank on, it changes everything. It restores everything to a balance. So you can say, well, justice will happen. No one's getting away with anything. Man, I'm eternally secure in Christ. I'm the richest man that exists. I I own all that God has. I'll be eternally secure with him forever. I might have pain now, but he promises me a life of eternity without pain. It just restores the balance. He he says here, their, their present life, that's why it's like this dream. Suddenly they'll wake up one day. And realize that that's not actually reality. Tim Keller said, The rich without God are on their way to being eternally poor. And celebrities without God are on their way to being eternally ignored. That's reality. That's reality. This is why he says, man, my spirit was so grieved and embittered in this text. I was in so much pain. I was so angry. I was so, in so much to you, God. I was so out of control. I wasn't thinking biblically. I wasn't thinking eternally. I wasn't thinking as, as how life actually really happens and how there's actually an eternity coming and that this life isn't all that I experience. He's realizing all those things. And I love this. Nevertheless, you hold my right hand. I love that. But even when I was unfaithful, you were still faithful to me. Even when I was such a jerk, you still loved me. Even when I doubted your character, you still pursued me. You still stayed with me. You still held my hand. Isn't that encouraging? That in your weak moments, that God still does these things? See, when we're living in the sanctuary of God, we can then say this, verse 24. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you'll receive me to glory. Whom I have in heaven but you. And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of your works. Beautiful. He goes, man, when all that was going on, when I envied the wicked... When I only looked at what seemed and not what was reality, he goes, you still guided me. You still held my hand. And one day you're going to take me all the way into glory. And he finally goes, who do I have in heaven but you? Like, like, who do I really have at the end of the day other than you? I mean, this is why it's, it's so challenging for us to ask. I mean, what are we after in pursuing him? Like, what do we really want? You've probably heard it asked, like if, if you could have heaven, all the glories of it with no pain, sickness, ease, but, but he's not there, which is the essence of heaven. Would you be happy? Would you be content? Would you be okay? See, when the psalmist entered the sanctuary of God, the Spirit of God quietly whispered to him, why are you serving me? Why, are you, why do you pursue me? Is it because of what you can get from me or because you want more of me? 
It's what the Spirit of God's whispering to him. He enters the sanctuary of God, and you can almost hear the Spirit of God whispering that to him. Are you serving me because I'm useful or because I'm beautiful? Which one characterizes you? Do you, are you even entering, do you, did you even, I don't know, when you, whatever time you heard the gospel, wow, Jesus Christ is a substitute for me, offers forgiveness of sin, offers reconciliation with God, I realize that I fall short of his holy standard, I realize I have, am an idolater, I realize I'm trying to be on the throne of my life and I can't, I realize he's God, he's king, I'm not king, I realize I needed a champion to stand in my place and absorb the wrath of God towards me and my sin and live a sinless life for me and I see that Jesus did it and I see that he rose and I see that he validates that victory and he promises me that victory yeah I I want that but was the desire the reason now so that you have a genie you can rub or because you saw that as so beautiful you wanted more of that beauty you wanted more of that glory you wanted to enjoy the one who's reconciled you to himself what characterizes you as you ask that question what's your approach to God is he more useful than beautiful Because, friends, how you answer that question will greatly determine how you respond to every bit of pain and difficulty in your life. How you answer that question will hands down change how you enter into pain and difficulty that you experience this side of glory. Because if he's only useful, then you'll constantly feel betrayed. And you'll constantly be angry. If he's beautiful, then like Paul, even if my sufferings push me into knowing more of this God who's resurrected, man, bring it on. Because I want to know more of this God who's beautiful and sure and steadfast and loving and relentless and ferocious. I, I want my heart to be so in line with his. What are you after, his beauty or his usefulness? That's why this is the bigger truth of this passage. The psalmist realizes that the whole focus of his faith has been off. It's been wrong. He's been more interested in what God could give him rather than what God had already given him in himself. That's the whole focus of this passage. That's the whole thrust of this psalm. See, we we have to get this. I know, I know that we consistently come back. I mean, if you've been attending for any length of time, you know that we, we constantly realize that this is the most important thing we can center ourselves on is an accurate understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? Because there's so many false gospels out there. There's so many tweaked versions out there. There's so many manipulated versions out there. We need to get right. If there's anything, that's why we're doing Galatians in the fall because he gets the gospel right. So we're gonna spend three months walking through that book because there's no other gospel, There's no other good news. And so if you don't get this wrong, you will begin to, if you don't get this right, you'll begin to use Jesus for something else other than himself. You will. And if you use Jesus for anything else, when you end up not getting that something else, you'll constantly feel betrayed because it's a promise that you made yourself and God never promised you. So if you're saying, yeah, I'll I'll take God, I'll follow Jesus if he'll fix my marriage, Or I'll follow Jesus if he'll fix my crazy kid. Or I'll follow Jesus if he'll get me the job I want or the career advancement I want. Or I'll follow Jesus, yeah, and I'll take God and I'll I'll ask for forgiveness of sin if he'll somehow redeem or restore and fix these areas in my life that are just lacking. I'm telling you, if, if that's how you pursue it, in the end, you're still an idolater and you're still lacking on the day of judgment. 
Because even your desire for Jesus is wanting something else, which is idolatry at its finest, which is Genesis 3 in the garden, which is the fundamental reason that all of us desperately need a Savior. Because we're all seeking after, this is Isaiah 53, wandering after things. We've gone our own way. We've strayed from the good shepherd of the sheep. We've thought we could run our lives and organize the universe, and that's why we define now what we think should go and what's sin and not sin. And instead of looking at him and going, no, what does he say is sin and not sin? What does he say is the way to life? What does he say leads to fullness of joy? Instead of being rooted in the truth or conforming to Christ, we conform more to culture. And and he's showing us here, no, I'm being reoriented back to the one place where truth is found, where joy is found, where satisfaction is found. And that's why you have to get the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that you're reconciled to him. You get him. That's reconciliation. There's union now that was meant to be there. There's, there's, there's fellowship now that was meant to be there. And listen, if you do not get that that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will set yourself up for a life of feeling betrayed. But you haven't. You haven't. When you realize that God has only promised you himself, that he will never leave or forsake you, that he is your portion. Now, can God reconcile and redeem your marriage? Absolutely. Can God intervene and work in the life of your children? Absolutely. Can God provide the things that you desire and get you through your job situation? Absolutely. Should we pray that he would do these things? Absolutely. Should we get furious at him if he doesn't? No. We're finite humans with tiny brains. Right? Like he is alpha and omega. He knows all, sees all, ordained all. You started and you're going to end. So instead of defaulting to our superiority and our humanity, we rest and enjoy his godness and his wisdom. That's how we operate now. So in moments when life doesn't seem to work out, that's where our default goes. I love what John Wesley said. He said this, You hear that an uncle you didn't know you had has died and left you millions and millions of dollars, and you're summoned to the bank to collect it. And about a half mile away from the bank, your car breaks down, and you don't shake your fist at God. You don't look enviously at everyone else's car. You actually skip all the way to the bank. That half-mile walk became the most joyous walk you ever took. The believer's walk, though fraught with pain and disappointment, becomes the most joyful one you've ever taken because of who awaits you on the other end, and it's just moments away. C.S. Lewis similarly said, When we get to heaven, it's not that we will look back and see the reasons bad things happened and go, oh, that's why that happened. Rather, we'll say, what bad things? And that moment will be so consumed with God's finished product that we will scarcely remember the process he used. See, the psalmist says, there's nothing on earth I desire but you, right? Are you at a place where you can say that? Are you at a place where you can say that? It's okay if you can't. Enter the sanctuary of God. Sit at his feet. Be reminded of the truth. If you could switch places today 
with anyone that you, you, the life of someone that you envy and not have God, would you? Would you? If today you, you, could, you could swap lives with anyone you wanted, who you envy, and you would not have him though, would you do that? Some of us I know, we're like, but Pastor Mike, I want both, right? <laughs> now I want life of ease and I want God. I mean, I, I want that life that I envy and I want him. You're already thinking it. Sneaky, sneaky sheep, right? I can see it. I can see it in your faces. Here's, here's, here's the thing, though. If that's the question that you're asking, then you do not know God like you should. And I mean that with all love and care. If, if, if that's the question that you're asking, you do not know this vast, majestic, glorious God like you should and like he desires you to know. Man, there are depths to be seen that you have not uncovered. There's warmth there to wear that you have not yet worn. There are aspects of his beauty that you have not yet seen. And he invites you into that. That's why I love that final phrase, as for me, it's good to be near God. He basically ends going, if not Jesus, then who? Who? Who else? Who else am I going to, where else am I going to turn? Augustine said this, if you're dissatisfied with God's answer in this psalm, then call out on your God for deliverance. Ah, but you say, I have no God at all. Then call on yourself to save you on that day of calamity. Listen, you can call on your possessions to try and help you. You can call on more relationships. You can call on engaging in um, other things. You can, you can call on the egregious desires of your heart. You can call on trying to alternate, change jobs, and get a new house. You, you can call on all those things on that day of calamity and the moment when it breaks, but it's just a Band-Aid. It'll lose steam. You'll hit a wall. There's a ceiling that will continually be there. And he says, I've discovered in the sanctuary, being with God, there is no ceiling. There is no wall. It's a well that I can't get to the bottom of. It's amazing. Some of you I know, you're like, I'm just not there. How do I get there? I'm just, I'm not there. Anything but I desire only God. I, for me, it's only good to be near God. Well, listen, if, if you're not a Christian, uh, you need to cry out for forgiveness of sin and know that he's after you, that he might even have you in this place because he's after you in love and after you in his mercy and he wants to reconcile you to himself and he wants to give you a heart of flesh and remove your heart of stone. He wants to replace the affections that you have for everything but him and replace it with affections for him. But if you're, near and you're, you're a Christian still going, man, I just, I'm just not there. I mean, there's, there's a number of things, but Deuteronomy 6 is an amazing text. Before anything else, it says this, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord with all your heart and all your soul, that you may live. <laughs> Some of you, that drives you nuts. Who has to change your heart? He does. He does. He has to do it. He has to circumcise your heart so that you will love him with all your heart. <laughs> Some of you are like, no, I don't want to go to him to get love for him. 
right? Give me something to do. Give me something else. I'm a doer. I'm a, that's the, that's the, we're just too sinful. Do you know that? We're too sinful. We actually have to go to the source of love for him to actually get love for him. You know, this has been profound for me to learn in my Christian walk. That, man, when I am pleading and begging him on my knees for affections and love, that actually grows intimacy with him. It's just this amazing thing that happens, that, that it's, it's God who says he's going to do that. God, I need you in order to love you. But it's always been the best thing to go to the source and ask him to change your heart. To say, God, Holy Spirit, fall, man. Do, invade the, the crevices and the deep cavernous valleys that just haven't been awakened. Would you do that? Would you be gracious in that? And then keep begging him, even if it takes you all night. And get around other saints and, and those who have passion for God and spend time with them, right? I always say, man, do those things that stir affections for him and be careful of the things that rob affections for him. And most of us, if we're honest, are not these outright wicked things. It's these morally neutral things. We just waste time on lesser things. We don't advance in, in the core disciplines that he's given us that's why we just we just I mean some of you guys you're right before where it wasn't 16 you're going man I'm, I'm getting ready to throw in the towel on this whole thing instead maybe you need to bend back into him and get in the sanctuary of God and say no, no God protect me man steward me lead me speak to me show me reveal yourself to me and as clearly as I can say it um, those of you who feel like maybe you've arrived um, as loud as I can say we should never get bored with Jesus Christ I mean, I love what Ephesians says, that it's going to take you ages upon ages to even get into the depths that are his riches, the depth of his beauty. In other words, you've got eternity, not only here, but in the future, to actually continually grasp all that is God and Jesus Christ. Now, now here's why that's so hard for us, because we get bored quickly. you got a favorite toy, and a week later you get bored of that toy and want a new one. You have a favorite movie for one week, and then you got another one that you love the next week. You get sick of the other one, right? We just put all this stock and value and stuff, and we get used to stewarding it, putting it up on a mantle, and then quickly to remove it and put something else there. It's just the sickness in our hearts. And yet Psalm 73 is reminding us that's not going to ever happen with Jesus. He's not going to be a movie you replace. He's not going to be a toy that you replace. There's things in there that you have never seen that will always be more to dig into. And just so none of us feel alone this morning, at least once a week, if not more, uh, this is me. <laughs> my, my, my heart's not where it should be. My, my, my pursuit and desire for him above anything else is not where it should be. And, and I feel embittered, and, and i got to be careful of envy, and i got to be careful of where God wants to bring me back to his sanctuary. But, but I can tell you, man, even though there are times where I've not done a good job of this, the scriptures command me, Colossians 3, to set my mind, heart, and affections where he's seated and not here. And the more I do that, the regularity and the rhythms become more frequent. And those moments become less. And I get back to the centrals in the Bible, calling people that love him, prayer, communing with him, asking the saints for help. Um, it's nothing new. We need to practice the things we already know. So let's go before him and ask him. Wherever you find yourself in this psalm this morning, just go before the Lord, ask the Holy Spirit of God to do a work in your life. Um, as you look at this text, uh, maybe you find yourself in different places. Maybe you're um, verses 1 to 15, and I'd encourage you to ask God to remind you of what is reality. 
Ask the Holy Spirit of God to stir up in you desire and love for his name, to give you discipline to, to call the person you need to call or to, to get on your knees and, and have moments of silence with him to ask the things you need to ask. If you find yourself in verses 16 on, um, maybe it's a, a good word of caution. Be leery of getting bored with this Jesus Christ or thinking that you're at a place that has already arrived and where you know him like you think you should and you've discovered all that God wants you to discover. Be very careful of even standing in a place of arrogance and pride in your doctrinal clarity. And might he move all of us to his sanctuary? Isn't it awesome that that's the, still the same place for everyone? That regardless of who we are, that, that's where we all need to land? Can you say this morning, God, it's... it's it's good to be near you. Where else am I going to go? Right. Like Peter in John 6. I mean, who else has the keys to eternal life? I, everyone else can leave you. I got nowhere else to go. Ask him for help where you need help this morning. Confess where you're envious. Confess the illusions that you're believing that successes and, and another life would have given you more contentment and ask, you to, ask him to help you to see the work of his son Jesus Christ in his cross and in his life and in his resurrection. Ask him to redirect your heart this morning. And as you prepare for the table this morning, as we prepare to come to the Lord's table and take communion, ask Him to maybe recall to mind a way that He's been so good to you. You've been doubting His goodness because you've been so predicated on that, that life is permanent here and you're forgetting that life is long and eternal. That there is that day coming. Maybe, maybe you just enjoy through His broken body and shed blood a specific way to you that He's been good to you. And meditate on that today. God, thank you for being kind. We don't believe you're kind. Thank you for nevertheless holding our hand when we're jerks and when we rebel. And we do not have a heart that is centered fully and finally on you. God, redirect us this morning. Place our hearts back with your heart. Get us back into your sanctuary. Get us back into your presence. Get us back into that place that's sure and steady and faithful and content. God, do this and help us. We're appealing to you, the only one who can help us love you. In Jesus' name, amen.